Welcome to week three of our Discipleship and Change series in our Combined Summer Sunday School. We started this just a couple weeks ago and have been working our way kind of in introductory material with regard to what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be involved in discipleship. We're going to continue that this morning. I want to read just a couple Bible verses this morning to set our minds, oh, I don't know, just in the flow considering our responsibility. Really, the first two weeks, hopefully, if you had to summarize the first two weeks of Sunday school, if I asked you what was taught, what I would want to hear you say is, I'm called to disciple and be a counselor within the body of Christ. That would be a a fair summary of at least what we hope was a takeaway. Now, there's a whole lot of other really good information there, what it means to be a disciple, defining discipleship, the importance of your connection to the Lord Jesus Christ and prerequisites, etc. At the end of the day, the, the point of those two messages was for us all to feel the burden that we are to be involved in discipleship and the counsel of others. Realize we read these two verses, just important to remind each other. We come together on Sunday mornings. Look, people are hurting. It may be you this morning. We're going to talk about situations this morning that are, because of the very nature of a lecture lesson, it's going to sound like everything is, is someone else. So I'm going to be addressing you, saying when you counsel, when you disciple others, this is what needs to be in your mind. That's not because I'm presuming that you yourself don't have burdens. It's just the nature of the material. But it's also important to remember this morning that we're not talking about people out there. We're talking about us in here, right? This is a portion, a core portion of MRBC. When we talk about that people have burdens that they need help carrying, that means you in this room and me. So I just, I don't want there to be any false notion that we're talking about things in a flippant manner or that I'm not aware that, that you're struggling Why I talk about how you should help other people that are struggling or anything of that, that nature, okay? This applies to all of us, both as those who are dispensing and need to be involved in bearing one another's burdens, dispensing counsel, and as those who need to receive it. We all constantly need to receive input and counsel and care from others as well. That's how the body of Christ works. So first I want to read Galatians 6. Galatians 6 verses, actually I'm going to start at the end of uh, chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We urge you, brethren, verse 14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Those two verses are just two of many of what sometimes are called counseling verses. And the intended audience for those verses, the hearers that are to do that, is all of us. 
And I believe that point's been made clear the last two weeks. Those verses aren't for a particular special class within the church called counselors. Those verses aren't just for spiritual leaders in the church, although they absolutely apply to them and they have a unique responsibility to shepherd and care. Those verses are written to those who are in those churches. Galatia, Thessalonica, do the work of the ministry, and in particular, do these things, these one another's that are particularly aimed at soul care. Care for one another's soul. Discipleship, counseling, at its core is soul work and soul care. We define discipleship by saying that it was purposeful friendship that does spiritual good to someone so that he or she will look more like Christ. And that discipleship has different aspects and components. It can include sermons, it can include things like this, it can include one-time Bible-based conversations on Sunday morning. You're doing discipleship if you're doing word ministry when you leave the sermon and you have a conversation with somebody about what you just heard, not just whether or not it was good, but in with regard to how it applies, how you're thinking through it, heart issues. That's discipleship, even if that's a one-off conversation. And that moved into then what we often think of as discipleship, which is involvement of a more regular frequency. And what was said is that we're all responsible for being involved in discipleship. Everyone, it's everyone's job. It's the calling of all Christians. It's all of our job. We're all in the flow of discipleship and we're all called to be spiritual friends to one another, giving each other the nudge, pointing one another toward Christ. Critically important. Now, terminal, with some terminology, the spiritual good in our definition isn't limited to problems or crises. Spiritual good doesn't always just come when somebody's in the middle of a crisis. Uh, just examples. Premarital counseling, although it can turn into a crisis situation, often is not given in the context of crisis, right? It's to encourage, to point toward a correct direction. Wisdom regarding stewardship of finances, often it can be a crisis, but it doesn't have to be. How about equipping for how to study the Bible? Those are examples of discipleship, examples of wisdom being dispensed that we would call discipleship or even counseling that aren't necessarily negative. That's spiritual good. But it absolutely includes problems or crises. And in those verses we just gave, those uh, Galatians 1 Thess 5, they, they imply that, that there's a need that others have that you can meet in the power of the Lord. And that need is, in our terms, oftentimes problems in life or crises. So one of the things we often do is we refer to discipleship as positive and counseling as when things are bad. So it's like, uh, you know, discipleship is when you meet at Starbucks, counseling is when you're in Pastor Rick's office. Okay, that's kind of sometimes the way that we use that terminology. And it's fine insofar as it goes or as far as it goes. But really, I want to just, for our time this morning and next week, I want to mold those two. When I say counseling in our lesson today and next week, don't divorce it in your mind from discipleship, okay? Most of what we're looking at today is, is and next week, is going to involve crisis or problem or helping people with struggles, but it's discipleship. But I'm, I'm going to use the term counseling as well. But we don't want to make this hard distinction. Oh, discipleship is long-term. Discipleship is more of the friendship aspect. Counseling is more one-off. Counseling is more, all those things can be okay when we're trying to look at terms. But for our purposes, we just want to understand that counseling and discipleship are connected. And you're all counselors, whether you think of yourself that way or not. And you may be bad counselors. 
we're not always good counselors all the time about every issue. But you are nevertheless a counselor anytime you're dispensing information or input into someone's life about anything. You're a counselor. So it's not just about having a label or a placard or a degree. You're a counselor in the body of Christ because when you talk to somebody about their life, if you offer them anything other than a head nod, and that even sometimes, if it's yes, and they just said something when it should be no, you're dispensing counsel. And so we need to think of ourselves as counselors in that regard. Whether it's biblically informed or not, when you dispense your view of something, you're a counselor. So this morning and next week, we want to deal with fundamental convictions about the way that you and I and Mission Road Bible Church view counseling and discipleship in this body. How do we approach it? If you admit and agree with me that you are a counselor, as I just said, then what is your approach? How do you think about counseling? How do you think about discipleship? How do you think about what you are to do and how you are to approach others who have needs, these others that you're to bear burdens with, Galatians 6, these that you're to be involved in restoring, Galatians 6, those that you're admonishing, encouraging, those things, correcting, all of that. How do you think about that and what are the fundamental convictions that we believe you need to have in your mind as, that drive your outlook for how you're gonna be involved in discipling and helping others. So for the next two weeks, I'm going to be with you. This week, we're going, to, we're going to work through some key questions for how we evaluate our approach, and then what I would call fundamental distinguishing features, those things that mark biblical counsel and discipleship. Next week, we're going to talk about the hot button issues. We're going to compare Christian psychology with what we would say the scriptures call us to in the life of the body of Christ. We're gonna talk about medicine, psychotropic drugs. How are we to think about those things? How are we to think about the, the modern issues that are a part of our world and are a part of this church in relation to what we're saying today in these fundamental convictions? So this will serve then as the launching point for, for next Sunday and where we'll take these fundamental convictions and say, all right, how do we think about issues related to what we consider counseling and discipleship? How do we think about issues related to whether or not it's okay to take medicine that is in a particular category? Or is what's the difference between what we've just looked at this morning and going to a psychologist? Things like that. We're going to talk about that. And that will require that we have mature and careful thinking. Here's what I mean by that. Some of the things even today may trigger you in this way. You, we think in extremes. We think in extremes. If this is a statement you're gonna hear, maybe today it might come out, I don't know. It's not in my notes, but it, it may come out next week for sure. I'm gonna say something like this. No medicine has ever solved a sin problem. Now, let me tell you what I did not just say. Medicine is bad. Medicine doesn't help people feel better. Medicine is a sin. I didn't say any of those things. But we think in extremes. 
And so this week and next week, I'm going to ask you to think clearly and carefully and actually really press into what we're saying and what you're saying and what you're hearing. Don't hear somebody say something like, the biggest problem that you need to address is a heart issue and hear that as saying the same thing as, we don't care about people's physical needs. Those two things aren't the same. We're talking about ultimacy. We're talking about something that's the most important thing in that statement. That's not the same thing as denying that other things, other issues are a factor. So I'm gonna ask you today, and I'll remind you next week as we dive into some of the more hot button issues and we'll have time for questions, we need to think maturely and clearly, not think in extremes, not think in camps, not think in movements, okay? Not think in Christian psychology movement versus biblical psychology movement versus XYZ movement. Our, our hope in this 10 weeks is not to align ourselves with a movement. It's to see how we need to be better equipped at MRBC to disciple and care for one another. So these two weeks, that's what we're gonna do. Beginning the two weeks after that, we're gonna look at sanctification for two weeks because that's how people change. We need to be reminded of what the Bible says about how people change. Then after that, we're gonna spend three or four weeks with very practical lessons on how we can be better equipped to care for one another. How can we be better listeners? How can we be better appliers of scripture to others that we're helping to bear burdens for? How can we think? How can we give instruction? How can we actually admonish? What are prerequisites that we need to be pressing into to do this better and, and more helpful? How can we love one another? How can we give hope, biblical hope, and not a platitude like, oh, it'll be better, just wait. And that's the extent of our counsel. How can we give somebody biblical hope? All of those things we're gonna talk about over the course of the next seven plus weeks. So this morning, First, I wanna look at key questions for evaluating your and my approach to counseling and discipleship. Key questions. This, these are, there's a lot of overlap between these and then the, the statements that are coming in the second section of your handout. But the questions just help ask ourselves, how do we think about these things? How are we thinking? How am I thinking? You may just think intuitively about this and you've never actually pressed pause and thought about how you are actually thinking. I want you to think about how you're thinking about how to think. No, I'm just kidding. Threw the last one in there just for fun. But that's the idea. We wanna ask questions of ourselves. What are, what are our beliefs? And you may have a specific example in mind of somebody, maybe it's you. And that's great. Think of that example and, and, and press in as we work through these questions. I'll refer to an example regularly, of just an example to maybe help us get traction here. I'm gonna say that I have a friend who comes to me and tells me, he's a Christian friend in this church who says he hates his job, okay? That's gonna be the example. That's not a real example. I'm sure that doesn't apply to anyone here. But you hate your job, okay? And so this friend has come to me and said he hates his job. First question, are you able to care for and give them counsel? Are you able to care for and give them counsel? That's really what the first two weeks were for. The answer is yes. Now, is the answer yes in every facet, in every extreme, in every example you could possibly come up with, no matter how extreme someone's problem is? No. But at a fundamental level, to ask the question, when my friend comes and says, I hate my job, am I able to care for this individual as a brother in Christ and give him counsel? And the answer has to be yes. 
because of what we just read and because it's my calling as a Christian brother to help him. So what is, why, is this, why is this question? Because it immediately gets at the first issue that we have when somebody comes to us and shares something about their life. Our first thought shouldn't be, I'm sure there's somebody else out there somewhere who can help you with this. That shouldn't be the first thought. Maybe that is a necessary thought because something's so severe or you know somebody with particular experience or particular care, particular wisdom that you want them to share. But the first thought should not be, okay, where did I put Pastor Hicks' phone number? When the guy comes and says, I hate my job, I have to ask, am I able to care and give them counsel? And the answer is yes. Scripture calls us to that. And God doesn't call Christians to things that he hasn't equipped them to do or won't equip them to do. So we have a responsibility. You and I have a responsibility. So my friend who comes, your friend who comes, says he hates his job, I have a call to help him think through that, work through that. Second question, what's the source of knowledge for your counsel, for your discipleship? What is the source of knowledge for your counsel or discipleship? We're asking here, if you submit to the scriptures and agree that you are indeed competent to counsel, per Romans 15, to bear a burden, to be an instrument in the restoration of a brother or sister, what is the knowledge base you're gonna draw upon in order to help them to give counsel? This is important. Are you gonna draw upon your intuition? Are you gonna draw upon secular practices or are you gonna draw upon the authoritative revelation from God? My friend comes, he says, I hate my job. Intuition may lead me to say, man, you're a nice enough guy. You probably just need a change of scenery. You should quit. Just get it over with. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. Intuition, my gut. What's my gut say about this situation, okay? When you rely on your gut that isn't biblically informed per se, as you've been hearing as we've gone through Proverbs over and over again, instead of God's wisdom, that's intuition. But that's a knowledge base that you're using for counsel. What about maybe a more secular approach? Tell my friend, look, your felt needs obviously aren't being met and your boss probably reminds you of your dad who you had problems with when you were growing up. So let's press in there and figure out how to help you see your boss why he's causing you problems. That's one approach. Or is your approach scripture? The grid of scripture, theology, how are you gonna help? How am I gonna help my friend start to think about his motives, his thoughts, the situation, what God's view of work is, what God's view of trial is, what God's view of happiness is, whether or not his happiness in this particular station is the end of all things, or maybe his focus needs to be shifted. There's a whole host of things that scripture would address and help to point out. We need to think biblically and, I, and appeal to the knowledge base that is authoritative in our dispensing of counsel when we're helping one another. You can't do Galatians 6, 1 and 2. You can't do 1 Thessalonians 5 and the other one another's if you don't use scripture as your knowledge base. Intuition is not good enough. Proverbs has shown us that. Sunday nights. Read Proverbs if you're unfamiliar with what I'm saying. It tells you your intuition is not good enough. Okay? Secular practices, and we'll see this a little bit here next week, may be really reliable guides in observing human behavior for the last 100 years. However, they're bad guides at addressing the soul issues that Scripture claims authority for. So what's your knowledge base? Another question, how do you evaluate and define problems? And this is related. Theology or secular theory? 
When my friend comes, am I gonna be thinking about what the Bible says about sin, about brokenness, about our response to trial? Or am I gonna be starting to think, hmm, what's the problem here? Cognitive process in his thinking, behavior patterns or beyond, maybe medical diagnoses for spiritual problems. How are you gonna evaluate the problem? That's a question that, def- that determines your counsel. How do you define and evaluate the problem or the burden that you are helping to bear? What is the goal and purpose of your counsel? What is the goal and purpose of your counsel? My friend says, I hate my job. Is my goal to get his mind off of the fact that he hates his job? Hey, but look at all the other great things you have going for you. Man, you just, you just moved into this gray house. You've got a, an awesome car. Wow, I wish I was you. That's not helpful. That's not the right goal. Okay, what is your ultimate goal for helping somebody? What's the purpose? Is it to help somebody feel better about their problem? Or is it actually help somebody think biblically about their problem? Is it just on the external? Is it just how they think and feel, but not ultimately solution, not ultimately getting at the heart issue. The ultimate goal of counseling and discipleship in the church is Christ-likeness. And as you interact with somebody, if your goal and aim in that moment for how you're gonna help them is not pushing them toward Christ-likeness, then, then we've missed the target. You've missed the target. And it's very easy for us to do that. Particularly when we're caught off guard by something and we start to backpedal and we're thinking, how can I dispense some quick, easy wisdom to help this person? It might be genuine desire to help, but often what comes out is intuition and what comes out is maybe something that isn't actually the problem. Christ-likeness is the aim, as we've seen the last couple weeks. Lastly, one question that helps differentiate how you're approaching this is what equips you for and sustains you through helping others? What equips you to help others and what sustains you through the process of burden bearing? That's a huge differentiating feature between church and a biblical approach to helping others and what's outside of the pages of scripture and outside of these walls. Is your own walk with Christ ultimately what you see as the sustaining force behind your ability to help others? And is your walk with Christ and, your, and the spirit-enabled ability to understand and discern biblical reality, theological truths, is that what ultimately equips you to help others at their most basic need spiritually? Or is it something else, some particular nuanced training that you need, a particular skill set or your personality type? What equips you to help? That question and your answer to that question def- defines how you're going to counsel, how you're going to give input into somebody's life. Those are some questions that you can ask, that we need to ask ourselves. Think of examples, think of real life situations that you're, that you're confronted with and work through that and say, how am I thinking about how I would help disciple, counsel this individual? That's important. Now related to that, and then, but not in a question format, what are some distinguishing features of counseling or discipleship that is biblical? Distinguishing features of counseling or discipleship that is biblical. Now, I didn't say biblical counseling on purpose because I just, it's a perfectly fine term. I just didn't want you to think that we're purely, that it's a method. It's one method of four, and at this church, they ascribe to that method. No, we're talking about the fundamental issues of counseling and discipleship, and that needs to be defined by the Bible. 
Again, I don't have a problem with biblical counseling. I've gone to biblical counseling training. We would encourage you if you want to go to biblical counseling training, etc. It's just sometimes we get skewed. Oh, okay, I get it. This is the method. It's one of many. There's a few out there, and this is the one that's most churchy, so let's take the biblical counseling method and do that. No, this is what are features of counseling or discipleship that are fundamentally biblical. First, God is at the center. God is at the center. That means that there is no issue that anybody that you're interacting with can face or no issue that you're going to face that God's unconcerned with or doesn't care about or that's outside of his purview, outside of his authority, outside of his anything. <laughs> Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If as a counselor, discipler, you are fundamentally responsible for disseminating wisdom, where does that wisdom ultimately come from and originate? God. So no problem, no problem that is of a spiritual nature that affects your heart, that affects your soul is outside the realm of God's concern and care. He's the creator, sustainer of the universe. We exist for his glory and he cares about the lives of his children. The scriptures call the children of God to love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so there's no such thing in your life or in anyone's life that you're gonna help within the context of the church that falls outside of God's concern. Even unbelievers, our counsel to them should be concerned with their relationship with God. You are in deep trouble. You are not at peace with God. You are alienated from him and will be punished rightly and justly for your sin. That's the issue. So God is always at the center and therefore, as we endeavor to help, Anyone and everyone who we come into contact with, loving our neighbors, doing those things, it's all about him, his reasons, his solutions, his wisdom. God is always at the center. Secondly, sin is the primary problem to be addressed. Sin is the primary problem to be addressed. Primary is an important term there. Sin is the primary problem to be addressed. When my friend comes who tells me that he hates his job, the primary problem that I'm faced with is not circumstantial. I'm dealing with a brother in Christ, a soul that needs care, who Christ shed his blood for, who has eternal interest in and love for, who is molding into Christ's likeness. My concern is his heart, is his soul, and therefore, according to scripture, sin is the primary issue that ultimately I'm concerned with as a disciple or as a counselor. Give you some verses there. We're not gonna look at them together. Those are just a few sampling. Our homardiology matters. Sin is the problem. And therefore, that shapes your counsel and discipleship. Now, does that mean that you don't care about their circumstances? Remember, words are important. Clear thinking is important. I said the primary problem to be addressed. If somebody comes to you who's hurting, somebody comes to you who's hurting because they're enduring a medical trial, are you going to look at them and say, I don't care how you feel? What's the sin in your life that's causing you to think this way about your illness? No. That would not be loving. That would not be caring. That would not be bearing one another's burdens. The primary issue is sin. The primary problem that you're attempting to address with your counsel and discipleship is ultimately sin. That doesn't mean circumstances don't matter, it just means they're not primary. That's important. David Pallison says this. 
the problems in living that necessitate counseling are not matters of unmet psychological needs, indwelling demons, poor socialization, inborn temperament, genetic predisposition, or anything else that removes attention from the responsible human being. Sin is the primary problem. Primary is an important term. Now related to that, if sin is the primary problem, then the gospel of Jesus Christ is the primary solution. In your counsel, in your discipleship, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the primary solution for every spiritual problem that you're going to encounter. Forgiveness for sin, righteousness, the power to change, all of those come through and are the gospel through relationship with the person of Christ. That's important. When we start defining problems differently than the Bible defines them, then you are inevitably left with defining solutions that are different. If sin isn't the main problem, then Christ won't be the main solution. And if circumstances are the main problem, then you're going to try to apply, even in the best situation or scenario in your thinking, trying to apply the gospel to a circumstance. I mean, the gospel of Jesus Christ, if I'm not dealing with sin, how is it just going to make me feel better about a, a bare circumstance without theology involved in how I'm seeing that circumstance? It's not. The gospel of Christ addresses spiritual soul issues, and so the primary problem we're dealing with are soul spiritual issues. The primary solution then has to be spiritual, and the ultimate solution is Christ. Why Romans 8 on there, the whole chapter? Because it talks about life with the Spirit, is with the Spirit of God, what, what being a Christian looks like. Promise, benefit, blessing, struggle, all of those things. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through Christ's substitutionary death, we've been given the righteousness we need. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the spiritual biography of every Christian. Dead in trespasses and sins, made alive in Christ. That's the solution for spiritual problems. If sin is the primary problem, and the Bible says it is, then Christ is the primary solution. Next, the situational difficulties faced in life are not seen as the ultimate issue at hand. The situational difficulties faced in life are not seen as the ultimate issue at hand. They're obviously an issue and a factor, but they're not ultimate. What do you mean by that? Well, just think of the teaching in Scripture about enduring trials. The trial itself is never the ultimate issue at hand in the counsel that the Apostle Paul or other writers is giving and addressing. It's the sole response. It's the spiritual aspect of how you're handling the trial that's at issue with the biblical writers, not the trial itself. The trial's a factor, right? The circumstances in life are a factor, but they're not the ultimate issue. Romans 5, verses 3 and, uh, 3 and 4, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul doesn't say we exult in our tribulations because we've been given a solution to the temporary circumstances that we find ourselves in. It's beyond that. You exult because of the spiritual realities that inform how you see your trial and tribulation. Nothing in those verses is about the actual circumstances. 
the circumstances that occur are a springboard for dealing with the spiritual issues in our lives. So as counselors, as disciplers, when we're interacting with others that are in painful, challenging, difficult circumstances, it doesn't mean we don't care about the circumstances. It doesn't mean that we're not going to bear that burden, that we're not going to be loving the other person and helping in and around the circumstances, but those situational difficulties aren't the ultimate issue. How we respond to those trials is the ultimate issue. Another example, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, personally, the thorn in the flesh. Paul didn't want that circumstance to keep going, so he's not saying that, oh, I had a thorn in my flesh and I didn't care. He cared. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, spiritual issue, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Circumstances. He wanted them changed. What's the response from God? And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. So Paul's response, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Sounds to me like situations and circumstances that are unpleasant and hard and challenging. He says, all of those for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Situational things going on in Paul's life, causing pain. God's addressing the soul, the spiritual, through the trial, through the circumstance, and that's the ultimate concern. Again, not the only one. Paul asked, Lord, remove this. And God responded and said, no, it's for your good. My grace is sufficient for you. James 1, 2 through 4, rejoice when you encounter various trials. Why? Because you're being matured. So spiritual concern through the situational difficulties. We can think of countless examples, serious illnesses, etc. Look, when we get the, the main issue wrong, then again, we try to administer the wrong solution. The spiritual care is what we're about in terms of discipleship and counseling as the ultimate issue. So as we're helping others deal with trial, Trials that involve physical circumstances, trials that maybe involve unimaginable pain. The idea is still not to address how someone feels about the physical. It's to press beyond that, to think about how they're responding to the problem spiritually, how they're thinking about the problem. This brings up something I've said a few times and we just need to be reminded right here when we talk about the situational difficulties faced in life and what it is that as disciplers and counselors we need to be most focused on. Discipleship and counseling is soul care. Think about that. It's soul care. It's primarily soul care. It involves everything else. We don't want to have an unbiblical anthropology. We don't want to think about the makeup of man as this bifurcation of soul and body and et cetera. God refers to man as unified whole, right? What affects Paul physically affected him spiritually, which is why God can use the physical to address the spiritual. 
So we don't want to draw this hard line. I'm not saying that. But as the ultimate, the ultimate is spiritual, not physical, right? The ultimate issue. And so that's when we say it's soul care. You are in the business of helping someone think, believe rightly about the issues of eternal importance which concern their soul, not simply feel better about their circumstances. As we say, situational difficulties in life are not the ultimate issue. Next, the primary aim is change through sanctification. So we ask the question, what is the goal of your counsel and discipleship? The primary aim is change through sanctification. The ultimate aim is to see the Lord's work, transforming work, which is supernatural, in the life of those who we're bearing burdens for. We're just the instrument, the channel for that work. That's even different than saying that the primary goal is behavioral modification. Does that mean that sanctification doesn't impact behavior? Not at all. Right? We're not, we don't want to have this idea, oh, I don't care if somebody stops doing this sinful behavior. I just, I really want to press in and want to know how they're thinking about it. No, no, no. You want the behavior to change. But the end goal, the ultimate aim is true change that starts in the heart. That's why we're going to spend two weeks on sanctification reminding ourselves, refreshing ourselves. How do people change? What does the Bible say actual change looks like? And it starts at the heart. And that's the ultimate aim for your discipleship and counseling. People being made more Christ-like through transforming work that's taking place in the heart. So when you ask, how, what is my aim in helping this person? My friend who says he hated his job. My ultimate aim, again, it's not circumstances. It's not to try to change it. It's not, oh, well, let me have a meeting with your boss. Maybe I can talk some sense into him, okay? That's circumstantial change, right? The main issue isn't his feelings initially. Oh, you know what? Let me just tell you all the great things about your job devoid of any spiritual concern to make you maybe feel a little differently about your job. The main issue, my main goal should be sanctification, helping him see what God says about his circumstances, about his attitude, about work, about blessing and privilege, et cetera, et cetera, so that the Holy Spirit applies that truth to his heart and makes him and molds him into Christ-likeness. We're after ultimately not so much changing someone feels about a situation, but how someone thinks based on what someone knows. You've heard Pastor Rick say that a lot. Given situation, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? And working back through that, and often our feelings are the worst judge of our, the, the theological perspective of a situation. That's why we work back. And that's why in your discipleship and counseling, you're not just simply dealing with the feeling aspect. So the primary goal is through sanctification, internal heart change. Next, in counseling or discipleship that you're administering that's biblical, Scripture is held up as the ultimate authority. Scripture is held up as the ultimate authority. There is no higher authority that you can appeal to than God's Word. There's no journal. There's no technical expertise. There's no discovery. There's nothing that's a higher authority than Scripture. First Thess 2.13, Paul commends them for what? Accepting the word of God for what it really was. Not the word of man, the word of God. Because it's God's very word, it is by definition authoritative. So important. You don't appeal to a higher authority. Look, if I, if I tell somebody that a particular component of my diet is making me sin, 
and I throw a medical journal at one of you to prove that my diet is making me sin, you've immediately been confronted with a reality that runs contrary to scripture because scripture actually doesn't address my diet per se, it addresses why I sin. And it's going to be authoritative. And to appeal to something as a higher authority than that or as if it's unaddressed is to, to really to neglect the authority of scripture, to go against what scripture says, to demean scripture. If scripture addresses the issue, then you can't appeal to a higher authority. I'm sorry. And we, we cannot do that in our counsel and discipleship of one another. Your authority has to be God's word. Your authority is not experience. Experience matters in counseling and care. That's true. I, I would be much more likely, let's say all things being equal, all levels of godliness equal in this circumstance or situation, I'm example, I would be much more likely to receive counsel on my parenting from someone who's raised children. Now, does that mean that somebody who hasn't can't point me to the scriptures? Absolutely not, they can and they should. Just saying, experience in that case matters, but it's not ultimately authoritative, which is why even if you haven't had the experience, you're still responsible for trying to point and help and direct and counsel. So again, no extremes here. We're not saying experience doesn't matter when I say experience is an authoritative. It matters, but it's not the ultimate authority. Scripture is. It's not scripture. It's, or I'm sorry, it's not experience. It's not something contrary to scripture, and it's not something outside of scripture. Authority. If God has spoken about it, that's authoritative, period. We have to bring that to bear on our lives and how we give counsel. If God has commented on anything, to appeal somewhere else as an authority higher is sin and it's treason. Lastly, scripture is held up as unconditionally sufficient. Scripture is held up as unconditionally sufficient. I want to clarify for a minute because often those critical of this last tenet are quick to point out all that scripture doesn't address. And I just want to say, pointing out all the things Scripture doesn't address is not actually a critique of Scripture's sufficiency. If you come to me after this and say, hey, Scripture won't help me do my math homework, I would say it may not help you actually solve the calculus equation that you're working on, but it will help you in how that you think about the fact that you have to do your homework and your sole response to your homework and ultimately the primary matters at hand in the way you perform your homework. A saying that there are topics that scripture doesn't address in sufficiency is not a critique of sufficiency. It's a misunderstanding of the actual problems that we're addressing. This goes back to the question, if sin is the problem and Christ is the solution, if the soul is ultimately what we're caring for in discipleship and counseling, then God's word has to be seen as absolutely sufficient. But if you think of counseling or discipleship as something other than soul care, then you're going to be tempted to say scripture is not sufficient because now you're attempting to address other issues. If you're trying to address circumstances, if, if I'm trying to get my friend out of his circumstances in the job he hates, I might be tempted to appeal to another source of wisdom saying scripture is not sufficient to deal with this issue because I can't find a verse that tells my friend how to either make his boss like him or how to get out of that job. 
That's to misunderstand the problem in the first place, which is then why I'm questioning the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture being sufficient means that everything we need to do what God wants and expects of us is given to us in Scripture. And when I say unconditionally, I mean unconditionally. There is not a single spiritual issue you can ever face this side of eternity to which we could say Scripture is insufficient to address. The sufficiency of Scripture is unconditional in that sense. Why? Because what it addresses, we understand it's addressing the soul, it's addressing spiritual matters. That's what it claims sufficiency for. And those are the ultimate issue at hand. So, somebody says, oh, you go to one of those crazy churches that says the scripture is sufficient? Well, point out the chapter and verse that deals with chemotherapy. Don't you have people that have had terminal illnesses in your church? And that's not an argument against the sufficiency of Scripture. That's a misunderstanding of what the sufficiency of Scripture is even saying or claiming. We would say the Scriptures are absolutely sufficient to help someone do exactly what God expects of them in that trial. But no, of course, we're not going to say, oh, well, Scripture tells the doctor how to administer the radiation. Okay? No, nobody's claiming that. That's not what the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture even claims to address. But I will say, and we have to believe in our counsel, that, you, that the scriptures are unconditionally sufficient in helping that individual walk through the trial of a terminal illness and walk through the trial of receiving the radiation or whatever medication is given in a way that would please God and in a way that would mold them toward Christ. To go anywhere outside of scripture for that is to undermine the sufficiency of scripture. we have to understand again that there are bigger issues in every circumstance than the circumstances. It all comes, a lot of our questions about this all come back to that. Again, to, let's use the example of a terminal illness. Is that the primary issue? No. Is it a massive factor and issue in your care for somebody? Yeah. Is it gonna impact how you love them and care for them? Yes. But is it the primary issue? If you're bearing a burden with somebody who's enduring a medical trial, their physical condition is not the primary issue you're concerned with. It's their response. It's their spiritual response. It's how they're thinking and believing about matters of eternal significance in the midst of this temporal circumstance. Therefore, you're gonna go to the all-sufficient scriptures which promise to provide everything needed for life and godliness not anywhere else because you're not trying to help them feel differently about the physical issue. You're trying to help them think and believe differently, which hopefully will at the end pull the feelings along with it. Not always. I want to read just a couple of verses to end and then want to leave about 10 minutes for questions. This is groundwork for next week because these are the principles that then influence how we think about the questions that are on all of our minds. Paul didn't address certain illnesses that now are a part of modern life. How do we think about those? Is scripture still sufficient in those categories? What about medicine that is undeniably has an effect on people and the way that they think and do and act? What about how do we think about that rightly? How does that affect the way that we counsel and give counsel to other people? We're gonna talk about those things next week with these 
as the foundational grid by which we think and consider those issues. But I want to look at two passages in the Psalms just to remind us about both the sufficiency of Scripture but also just the careful nuance of what that means. Often it is, there's this caricature of the things similar to which I just said that are, oh, you go to, you know, you guys are cold. You just dispense Bible verses like it's medicine. Take three of these Bible verses, call me tomorrow, tell me if you feel better. That's not what this is about. I hope you see that as a mischaracterization. And that would also be a misrepresentation of the God of the word and how he's communicated himself in his word and how he responds and to us in times of trial. Listen to Psalm 19 and tell me if you think that this sounds cold, like get over it, the Bible's sufficient for whatever you're dealing with, go read it and then tell me if you figured it out the next day, okay? That, hopefully, is in none of our minds as what it means to biblically counsel or give and dispense care for somebody with God's word as the ultimate authority and sufficiency. But if we're tempted to think that way, just listen to Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I don't read Psalm 19 as like a cold theological discourse on the sufficiency of Scripture. The psalmist is saying soul restoration, joy, deep-seated heart felt joy, just as two examples come from God's word. Psalm 119, starting verse 65. Listen to the connection of external circumstance and soul care administered through God's word. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Interesting there, scripture is not extolled as sufficient, as lovely, any other adjective that's there, divorced from real life circumstances that are not always pleasant. The psalmist actually with God's 
inspiration and God's perspective says, it was good that I endured affliction so that I would learn your word. And then connects the, the enriching of the life spiritually because of the physical circumstances and through them and God used them. So don't buy into the lie that sufficiency and authority of scripture is sort of a cover for cold, feeling less, loveless, merciless, grace-free sort of counseling that's a dispensing of cold, do this, do that, stop it, counseling and discipleship, because it's not. To affirm God's word as sufficient and authoritative as anything but that, it's actually the most loving thing you can do because it's a matter of eternal significance. Are there questions? Questions? Jim. Yeah. The question was related to, I think, that, that sort of, that if we use scripture as our ultimate tool, the ultimate scalpel for soul care, what does that look like? Does that mean there, there's a mechanical administration of everything that a particular issue might, the Bible might say about a particular issue and that it's our job to simply bring those to the attention of someone, to sort of throw at them the entirety of scripture on a particular issue? And Yeah, I mean, the actual act of giving somebody a Bible verse is not the total sum of caring for them and loving them in the way that we're called to. So sufficiency doesn't mean that you don't listen well, and we're gonna talk about that. It doesn't mean that you're not nuanced in your care. It doesn't mean that you don't care how somebody feels and that you just throw Bible verses at them as the, hey, I've looked up everything there is in the Bible and it's sufficient, so you need to figure it out with these verses I gave you. Um, yeah, all not, I mean, we can go back and listen to Pastor Rick's sermon on exactly how what all knowledge means there. The admonishment, I, I think he's saying you've been equipped with every tool in Christ Jesus and you have God's word and you're able to do what you need to do to admonish one another, that that's our ability, God-given spirit wrought in our hearts. And, but yeah, to your point, it doesn't mean that we go to a concordance and just dump verses on people. Uh, there's relationship involved, in other words. To bear one another's burdens is what it sounds like and flows from love, not just an exchange of information. I don't know if that is getting at some of what you were asking. It's not just informational, in other words. It includes information, but we can't just see it as informational. Did I see other hands? Gary. I see, yeah. Yeah, Gary is just pointing out that sometimes we treat the word admonish in the same, as a synonym for rebuke. That's what it sounds like, that, that, that counseling basically consists of us rebuking other people. And it may, by necessity, in, in, involve rebuke. But yeah, admonishment is uh, encouragement because it's corrective, certainly, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's this negative confrontational in the negative sense that we often think, yeah. I think that's good. Other questions? Yes. Do you remember what the reference, Bible reference was, that he introduced the 
Maybe Romans 5. My gut says Romans 5, but I don't know. I mean, Romans 5 verses 2, 3, and 4 in particular deal with how we respond to trial. And so that's what comes to my mind. The question was, when did Pastor Rick first introduce the feel, think, know paradigm? And I, I don't know exactly, but I think if you, in Romans 5, that it did come out there. Yeah. Anything else? Bruce. Yeah, good question, Bruce. The role of prayer in counseling. You need to pray. Uh, that's not to make light of the question. That's very important. If counseling is soul care and is, if we ask the question in the beginning, what will sustain you and equip you for the counsel that you're dispensing? If it's fundamentally a spiritual issue, and it is, then you fundamentally need the Spirit's help, right? And so it's a very good point that you bring up. We need to pray, not only for the other person asking for the Lord's work and intervention, but for us as we're involved in giving care and counsel and bearing one another's burdens, that you would speak rightly, that you would be full of wisdom, that you would be engaged in a manner that pleases God, pointing them the right way, that you wouldn't be relying on intuition and other things. James makes that clear in just one example in James 1, right? Right after telling us to rejoice in trials, he says if we lack wisdom that we need to ask, and that's prayer. So yes, prayer needs to be a, a fundamental part of our lives as we're thinking through how to help people, how to be brothers and sisters in Christ, bearing one another's burdens. Absolutely. Thank you, Bruce. Anything else? You're saving them all for next week? I'm gonna have a ridiculous amount of notes. We're not gonna even get done. Finish about 9.57 and say, oh, sorry, I dismissed. Pastor Rick's email's in the bulletin. Now, let me, uh, let me close in prayer and we'll be dismissed for our worship service.